You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader hosting this week. And with me are Lynn Bonner, Craig Jarvis, and Colin Campbell, all of the News and Observer. We had a busy week with a uh, Supreme Court uh, move on redistricting uh, that affects the 2017 uh, planned election, uh, the start of a new uh, regular session of the legislature, a long session, and uh, Governor Cooper filling out more of his cabinet. Uh, we'll start with that. Craig, uh, you covered some of the appointments this week. Uh, we had a new Secretary uh, of Administration, Commerce, DHHS, and Veterans, uh, Veterans in the Military. Uh, what did you think was, uh, was notable this week? Well, uh, you know, he's filling out his cabinet. He just has three out of ten slots left to fill, so we're kind of getting an idea of uh, of what it's going to look like from a Cooper administration point of view. Um, earlier in this week, we had uh, appointments to uh, Secretary of Administration, a woman named Michelle Sanders, who's had no government experience, has been in the private sector all along uh, in the biotechnology field. She worked for Biogen. She's from Bellhaven. Uh, so, you know, like a lot of these picks, she's kind of a success story uh, in the private sector, and uh, they've emphasized that. Uh, on the same day, they announced the selection for uh, Secretary of Commerce, uh, Tony Copeland, who was an assistant uh, secretary in that department some years ago. I remember him uh, when he worked for BTI, a fiber optics cable firm that set up shop here in Raleigh. It seems like it's the early 90s, and because uh, I remember because I had no idea what fiber optic cables were back in 1992. But uh Tony Copeland, another accomplished fellow. I'm still, I'm still pretty sure I don't understand what they are now. So yeah, well, I, I just I try to pronounce it right. <laughs> uh, then today we had uh, a couple of interesting selections for the uh, Department of Veterans and Military Affairs, which I think was a cabinet position that Governor McCrory created last year. Am I right about that? Yeah, it was yeah. a cabinet level well, Yeah, uh, he elevated that. Um, so Cooper has uh, chosen Representative Larry Hall of uh, Durham, who's actually uh, was the Democratic uh, majority or minority leader in the legislature up until uh, just recently. Uh, lifelong Durham guy. Uh, he's going to head the veterans. Oh, and a career Marine. He's, so he's going to, you know, he's got some uh, experience along those lines for veterans and military affairs. Interesting choice for the uh, the one with the big one we've been waiting for is Health and Human Services because it's such a big sprawling department, does a lot, a lot of people in it. He chose a uh, Dr. Mandy Cohen who is uh, really accomplished. I'm not sure how, young, how old she is, but she's not. You know, she's. She, I don't think she's middle aged yet. She's um, risen to the top of uh, of the federal healthcare uh, agency that deals with Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, really is under Obamacare, as was one of the foot soldiers in that uh, in that effort, uh, which is really, I suppose, the political negative against her uh, from the Republican point of view. But uh, uh, we'll see. I mean, there's no denying her qualifications, but it's it's a very tough job. You and Lynn are both uh, looking more into this DHHS pick today. Uh, Lynn, it seems like a departure from past DHHS oh, leaders. Very much so. Um, I don't remember um, someone who chosen to run DHHS who has who had as intimate knowledge of 
Medicaid as she would have actually pretty much helping to run it um, uh, from the federal side. So, um, you know, under the previous administration, we had a lot of trouble um, with uh, some Medicaid issues and uh, making sure the state or having the state comply with some um, Medicaid requirements. Uh, so we would be getting somebody who, who knew that cold. Um, but of course, it, and the state focuses a lot on Medicaid and it's of prime interest to legislators because um, it enrolls so many people. It's 1.9 million people enrolled in the state, most of them kids. But uh, it's also a really, um, it's a big program. It's uh, about $14 billion. The state only pays about $4 billion of that. But um, legislators are um, keenly aware of how much money is going out to pay for Medicaid. Um, and it's something that they've kept a close eye on, especially about three or four years ago when there were uh, overruns in the Medicaid budget and um, uh, the Medicaid budget was going wrong in, in many different ways. So it's something they watch closely. But um, DHHS, is, as Craig said, is just so much more than that because it deals with mental health. One of the reasons it has so many employees is because of the state hospitals. There are people working in um, state psychiatric hospitals, um, you know, East, West, and and in Butner. Um, it uh, is public health. And so, you know, they're dealing with flu shots and how many people or encouraging people to get flu shots and uh, tracking um, infectious diseases. Uh, it does uh, a whole lot. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. I used to say that uh, it's hard to leave the secretary of DHHS with your um with your reputation intact because there's so many ways for uh, for that department to go wrong. I mean, you know, we had – they deal with uh, food stamps and um, the state a couple of years ago was in trouble because it was way, way behind in approving uh, food stamp applications. There was an audit this week that said that counties are behind in approving uh, Medicaid applications, and a lot of them have errors. And there was a, a note to DHHS that they need to take more control of what the counties are doing. So uh, DHHS, um, you know, is just sprawling and a huge challenge. Abortion clinics, uh, yeah, foster care, yeah, reg- group homes. Regulations for, yeah. for everything. There's like 30 divisions, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, is it does it seem like kind of a, a, a turnaround task, a turnaround job, or is it just sort of? Uh, it seems like whenever a new secretary comes in, there's probably problems they have to address. But is there anything sort of looming that's going to have oh, to be yeah, fixed? Oh yeah, there. Uh, I don't know about fixed, but there are lots of things going on with the department. The biggest may be um, Medicaid. The state has asked for something called a waiver to uh, move to privatization of Medicaid, which would be a huge departure from what we're doing now. Um, and it's a very intricate kind of setup that they've put together with, you know, regional um, Medi- Medicaid plan, Med- Medicaid managed care plans and statewide plans and 
you know, that's still very much in the beginning of asking, you know, the federal department that um, Dr. Cohen be, would be coming from to to approve that. So there are going to be lots of negotiations ahead with that federal office on getting that waiver. Um, the state is still uh, in the middle of a consent order on mental health, and they've agreed over the years to um, add more uh, supportive housing for people who are now in adult care homes and institutions. And they, the state has not been meeting its benchmarks for that. So, um, you know, and which uh, the federal government has noted. So that's a challenge there to get not just housing, but um, community treatment for people who, and, and supportive jobs for people who um, are now in institutions or adult care homes. I mean, there are just lots of things going on. The, is something they want to do is reduce um, infant mortality. And there's a, a, the state has a relatively high infant mortality rate. And there, there's been a lot of talk about, well, how do we reduce that? What do we have to do? Um, we had a story this week about the increased numbers of children in foster care. So um, there's always, even if there's not an impending crisis, there's always a huge to-do list for DHHS. The other uh, agency that was kind of interesting is Commerce, Craig. Uh, when the uh, governor appointed Tony Copeland to lead Commerce, he gave him the responsibility of uh, doing a review there of, of how – uh, the bureaucracy is is set up, and so how, what what is he supposed to do? What's the situation there? Well, his first task is to take a look at this uh, economic development partnership that they created. It was kind of a spin out, a spin off of some of commerce into a public private uh, uh, arrangement partnership arrangement that is was meant to you know market the state and bring jobs in. And uh, Cooper has said more than once that he thinks he's he's not convinced that it's been all that successful it took two and a half years to really get off the ground he doesn't he wants to know if it's effective or not and so he suggested this week that he would be bringing in some kind of outside experts to uh, to kind of evaluate that and uh, basically the commerce department has a contract with this public private partnership and uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll see mm-hmm. The two of you also uh, had the fun of uh, watching the inauguration festivities earlier in the week as uh, Governor Cooper officially took over. Of course, he had uh, been sworn in before that, but he gave his inaugural address uh, over the weekend uh, amid the snowstorm. Yeah, it's 70 degrees out today. It's hard to believe that a week ago we were worried about, we were socked in with uh, repairing for the snow and ice and um, every the the ball moved and the inaugural parade canceled and the inaugural pretty much brought inside. Yeah. Everybody, <laughs> very kinda, everybody at the ball anyway, which I did make it to, I braved the three or four blocks of snowy weather to get there. Um, but it was, uh, you know, people put the best face on it. It was really trying circumstances during the week because nobody knew where it was happening or what was happening or if it was happening. And, uh, they crowded into Marble's Kids Museum, and it was, you know, a big turnout, thousands of people. It was every Democrat, certainly, that I've ever met in Wake County, I think. Um, although this was a junior league event, it's not, you know, it was not a, for one party or the other. There were, uh, there were Lieutenant Dan Forrest and council of state members were there just as part of the program. 
it was the 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 noise level was so intense you couldn't hear what was happening from the stage and i really wish i i would have known what poem dan forrest read but he got up there and spent about five minutes reading uh very sincerely from a poem that uh seemed meaningful in some way i just i couldn't read lips so i don't know but uh, there were a lot of people there, some bands. It was just sort of, you know, Democrats have been through some dark days uh, in the state uh, last uh, few years. And uh, this was definitely a predominantly Democratic, let's feel good about ourselves uh, event. And uh, tell us all about uh, what they were wearing and uh, what the da- oh, what kind yeah. of dance moves as if the I governor. could do that. Yeah, I didn't do the what are who are you wearing? Uh, I, I saw you interviewing everyone down going going down no, the carpet, I, uh, asking that question. No, so. I. Uh, People mistook me for somebody that belonged there, and so we, they just chatted like we, you know, like we were old friends. It was, it was kind of fun. I was sort of, you know, <clears throat> I can't say an inaugural ball was at the top of my list of things to cover uh, last year, but uh, I, I had a, it was kind of fun. And some dancing, the governor and the new first lady. There was. Took we took some the great video, really. Of uh, it looked almost painful the way. Uh, the way uh, uh, Roy Cooper's wife, uh, Kristen, did this, uh, I don't even know what you call it, a big dip. As we were dancing around, he kind of dipped her and she arched back. And Anyway, very dramatic video. You should go to our website and, uh, and see that uh, it shows quite a, quite a happy crowd. Uh, and then as, as most people uh, were, were sledding and enjoying the snow the next morning, uh, the governor got into a, a, a mostly probably empty room and uh, got yeah. in front of a mic and right. started giving his in between the emergency address. management updates. Literally, um, Cooper gave his inaugural address uh, in in the mansion. Um, no crowd, uh, just the camera. But the address was interesting in that you know, as we know, um, there's been no uh, honeymoon. Cooper is. Um, suing the state over bills legislature passed to strip him of his um of some of his powers there's already been a failed um attempt to repeal hb2 um so he kind of cut two paths i thought with his inaugural address saying hey uh we've got these areas of agreement but also pointing to these um places where he knows there's disagreement among legislative Republicans. You know, he talked about HB2 again and said, you know, he there's there are enough votes to repeal it, let people vote. Um, and he talked about expanding Medicaid, um, which Republicans have repeatedly said, you know, he can't do legally. But he said, you know, again, you know, get, uh, offering more people health care and um, – you know, expanding jobs, improving the economy. So he took on some issues. It wasn't just a lot, like a lot of inaugural speeches. Um, hey, everything's great. We have a sunny future. But he talked about some specific things in specific policies that he wants to pursue that he knows the, the um, people, legislators oppose. All right. And we'll talk about session a little bit after the break, but uh, that does segue into uh, uh, Cooper uh, challenging the uh, law that is going to um, uh, uh, require confirmation of his Senate appointees. Uh, Craig, what was the latest on uh, 
uh, on that case. Uh, basically, they, ex- they took the lawsuit that he'd already uh, filed and expanded it to also encompass this uh, uh, Senate confirmation process, right? And it sounds like we still don't know everything right. about how that's going to work in the legislature. We don't know. And that's people, the reporters <clears throat> keep asking uh, uh, the governor what, you know, as he makes these cabinet announcements, you know, what about this confirmation process? Uh, and he, and he, all he can say is it's up in the air. We don't know. I've sued. We'll find out. His first lawsuit had to do with the uh, com- com- combining the state ethics board and the board of elections. Then on Tuesday, he expanded that to include uh, to challenge on constitutional grounds the uh, Senate confirmation and uh, some other issues um, in the new law. So they really don't know how it's going to play out. I mean, it's that's certainly the big question mark. The Senate, meanwhile, has made some tentative steps toward figuring out how they'll handle these dominations. They'll, they'll, they won't do it like all ten cabinet members. They'll do them one by one. They'll run them through committees, and they'll come to floor votes if it, you know, if it, if it gets to that. Um, and meanwhile, those appointees, unlike at the federal level, those appointees can start. In fact, some of them have already started, right? Correct. Yeah. And as we read it, uh, you know, it's, it, the, the Senate can take its time. They can either jump on it right away, which I think they will. Or they could delay and not do anything. And if they don't do anything, then um, the, these nominations don't count right? at, the, at the expiration of the uh, of the session. But um, it, you know, so that's possible that could happen. But we we sort of don't think so. Okay. Um, one thing I thought was interesting: the uh, governor, uh, the uh, I, I mean, Phil Berger, the uh, Senate leader. Uh, was was in a pretty cheery mood on Wednesday, that considering the session ended just a few weeks ago in kind of acrimony <clears throat> as he unsuccessfully tried to steer an HB2 compromise to fruition. Um, and he had his own members in the Senate voting against him uh, on that, which he knew they, they would, but he was hoping the Democrats wouldn't go along with him. Um, so they, uh, you know, it was kind of an, uh, an unusually deflated Phil Berger at the end of last session uh, this week, it was not that at all. He was. He said, today I've got a smile on my face. You know, we'll disagree about things, but, uh, you know, we'll just move on. So, All right. Well, we'll be right back with a little more on session after the break. Stay with us. Today, my new dad threw a barbecue. I burnt everything. Ah! And then we played catch. I broke Mr. Lewis's window. And then, somehow, my hand. My hand! And then my dad even let me drive his car. The hospital's on the right! It was a rough day. It was a great day. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of kids in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. We're back with more Domecast. So the legislature was back in session, uh, but it was uh, uh, quickly over. Uh, they are technically still in session, I believe, right? But they, they're technically adjourned for two weeks because that's the, the, the key discrepancy for fundraising purposes is if they're adjourned, you can get political action committee money. If they're ah. not adjourned, you ca- they can't give to your campaign, in which case you just have to wait until the session's completely over. So that's why there'll be fundraisers for the next two weeks. Aha. Okay. So at any rate, they'll be, uh, they'll be out of here for two weeks. There won't be any bills filed or voted on or anything like that. Committees meeting. Uh, I guess some committees will be meeting uh, until they come back on the 25th of January. 
and um, what is expected to be ahead. I think uh, some of the leaders uh, may have telegraphed that a bit when they were here uh, on Wednesday. Yeah, it's kind of uh, looking to be a little bit more of the the same that we've gotten in the last few years of Republican control. And uh, I should uh, stress that, that neither Phil Berger nor Tim Moore got into a whole lot of specifics about what's on the table. I mean, we're early enough in the game where I think they're still sort of discussing ideas, ironing out specifics, uh, and it's going to be a while before we see any of the uh, big substantive bills that come out that give us a sense of sort of the nitty-gritty of the policy proposals that'll be the hallmarks of this year's session. Uh, but the key points uh, that they stressed were uh, tax policy. It does sound like uh, they want to look at, at lowering taxes again, probably on the, the income tax side. Uh, there may be some changes as well to sales tax that are being uh, discussed. I know uh, there's a lot of concern among the uh, bigger cities in the state that that whole idea of the sales tax revenue shift where uh, they would change the formula and, and shift some of the revenues to rural counties. Some of that's already been put into place. Uh, but it was a softer version than um, Senator Harry Brown had initially wanted. So there's some concerns that that could come up again. Uh, no official word either way on that uh, this week. Uh, on the education front, uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger reiterated a call that uh, within the next uh, year or two, uh, the Senate wants to bring average teacher salaries to 55000 a year. Uh, their whole uh, effort towards teacher pay increases this past year was designed to get that average to uh, about 50000 depending on which metric you're using. They were using one that included some local supplements um, in that uh, calculation. Uh, so that's uh, something that seems likely. Um, House Speaker Tim Moore said he's certainly interested in, in going that direction with teacher pay. Uh, and then the uh, the big elephant in the room from the last uh, special session, of course, is, is House Bill 2. So I asked Tim Moore uh, a bit about that. Did he think that uh, House Bill 2 is uh, a dead issue now, that if, you know the opportunity to repeal that had come and gone, or did he expect to see it come up again this session? And he said there's still conversations on that. He expects some sort of compromise to service, doesn't really have any uh, details about the specifics. But I did ask him directly, so is it definitely not a full repeal? Because, of course, the, what the, the Democrats and opponents of House Bill 2 want to see is a full repeal, no strings attached. Um, and he said, well, it'll be a compromise. So that, I think, uh, tells you a little bit about what to expect, that um, the opponents of House Bill 2 may not fully get their way. Um, and if there's a sort of only a partial repeal of House Bill 2, um, that may be appealing to some folks in the the middle, but you're still going to hear a lot from some of the LGBT advocacy groups that uh, will be fighting it as long as there are any provisions of House Bill 2 uh, left on the books. So those are sort of the main things. I think there's also some discussion about deregulation, which is uh, sort of an unfinished piece of business from last year. There was a regulatory reform bill that just did not quite make it together in the uh, last weeks of the session back last summer. So uh, that's probably going to surface again. Uh, but uh, lots more, I'm sure, will be on the agenda that we're not even thinking about. Oh, I should note that there was a um, legislative committee meeting of some sort uh, yesterday, Thursday, um, in which some of the, the farthest, most conservative members of the House, uh, Michael Speciali and Larry Pittman, uh, were discussing the possibility of loosening gun restrictions on university campuses to allow, uh, I guess, concealed carry, uh, which is currently not allowed um, on UNC system campuses. So that may come up. Of course, that's what we're hearing from folks on one end of the ideological spectrum in the House Republicans. So that may not be a viewpoint that's shared by leadership and may not be something that ever comes up. But the uh, the talk is already out there. So, Craig, how does all this run into uh, Roy Cooper's agenda? Well, uh, I think Colin might be right that, that uh, 
consensus or compromise might be the the watchword. We've kind of been building up this idea of some kind of epic battle between the new Democratic governor and the Republican legislature. But so far, all those parties have been talking like they can make, you know, they can try to be nice to each other. And maybe that's all it will be, but maybe they'll actually uh, be able to, uh, you know, come up with some meaningful compromises that, that work. Uh, Cooper was asked the other day about what his priorities are, and he just kind of off the top of his head uh, rattled off a few, some including areas that the legislature has mentioned, like teacher salaries. Uh, he said possibly an infrastructure bond of some sort. He wants to deal with opioid addiction issues. Uh Justice reinvestment, which was uh, keeping people out of prisons by providing more treatment and supervision in the communities. It's been a big success. It was a bipartisan thing that started a few years ago. actually started under Governor Purdue and then was uh, Representative David Geis picked up the ball and ran with it. And he's been in the uh, Department of Public Safety sort of running that whole effort. Anyway, Cooper said he'd like to pursue that which is actually becoming a national model. It's, it could be very good. I don't know what else, what else, uh, they need, but Cooper mentioned it. Uh, the, the raising the age of, of, uh, when you're considered an adult in the court system and then Medicaid yeah, that expansion. That seems to have some bipartisan, yeah. uh, uh, momentum, at least some of the coverage I've read in. Yeah. It also on happens every that. year. It seems like it's one of those <laughs> that just, everybody says it sounds good, but it just doesn't really ever get off the ground. Like, like the gun thing. I wonder if it'll actually go anywhere. I mean, there was a flurry of gun bills a few years ago. Then it seemed like, well, we've kind of run that course and let's not get carried away. And although there has been, you know, there are organizations to promote guns on campus. So there's a, there's a bit of a voice for that. So. We'll see. Now, we originally thought, well, they're going to have to get out of here at a reasonable time because they're going to have to all go campaign for re-election because there was this special election that was called for 2017. Uh, that still could happen, uh, but it seems a little less likely after this week. Uh, Colin, what happened uh, in the courts this week on that? Yeah, so we had a very brief uh, Supreme Court order that was filed, I guess, Tuesday um, on the appeal that Republicans have made um, to essentially delay this court order that was going to require a 2017 special election as a result of a, a federal court ruling that said that the a number of the legislative districts that's currently drawn are uh, unconstitutional racial gerrymanders. Um, and so the, the order from that court, which was issued, uh, I guess, back in December, uh, was that uh, legislators had to redraw the maps by the 15th of March. Um, and then there would be primaries in late summer, early fall, and a special legislative election in every district that was affected um, in November of this year, uh, which would have created this sort of weird scenario where uh, people were only serving one-year terms um, and then uh, would have given Democrats a, a fairly quick opportunity to uh, make some headway in, in terms of uh, winning back, uh, at least breaking the supermajority in the legislature and winning back a few more seats, which would have been a big help for uh, for Governor Cooper in, in enacting his agenda, or at least being able to veto uh, the Republican legislature's agenda. Uh, however, this order is a pretty big setback for that because the Supreme Court's put that on hold, uh, pending their next action on this matter, which could come as early as January 19th. Um, but that is not, as, as best I can tell, a likely scenario. The Supreme Court uh, moves quite slowly, um, and there's multiple redistricting cases that are kind of floating around at the Supreme Court level. We're still awaiting a decision on the uh, Supreme Court's decision in the congressional redistricting case, which, of course, they already redrew drew the maps on that and had elections, uh, but there's still the potential that they could – 
rule in favor of a Republican legislature um, and allow them to return back to the old congressional maps, which would be a whole different can of worms uh, election-wise. Uh, but the upshot I'm hearing from a lot of the folks I talked to um, is that because there's such a potential for delays in this process of the Supreme Court deciding something on the legislative districts um, and you know briefs that have to be filed, deadlines further down the road, there's a decent chance that it gets delayed enough to where it would be too late to have a special election in 2017, that even if uh, opponents of the current districts were to prevail in court um, and were able to, to strike down the current legislative districts, that uh, the first election under new districts might not end up being until the, the regularly scheduled election in 2018. So You uh, start running into candidate filing deadlines, and then you have to have a primary, you have to have a general, right? So I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if we have any sense yet of when – that would all have to – when would be the latest the court could could decide? Yeah, it's hard to tell because uh, I think some of it – the court would end up having to weigh in that, you know, if they came down with a ruling of some kind in, say, May, um, you know, the court could specify in their ruling, you know, we're going to only make you have the election in 2018 or the legislature could come back and say – file something that says we really need you to delay this election because here are the reasons we can't do this in, in this frame of time. Um I will note that uh, this past year with the congressional races, I think we had the ruling came down in maybe January or February on that. Um, and it was, actually was a, may have just been a couple weeks before the March primary. So we already had a primary nearly about to happen. They came back, redrew the districts and had another primary in the new districts. Uh, even after we'd had an election in the old districts on the primary side, those results of which we've never seen. They were uh, sealed permanently, and we'll never know who won the fake primary in March under the districts that got thrown out. Okay. All right. So it could happen pretty fast in, in the end. Yeah. So we'll see. There's certainly a lot up in the air. There's, there's been a lot of interpretations um, and sort of hot takes swirling around the internet among people who are experts on, on different sides of the matter. And I, I think the bottom line is just we really don't know how this is all going to play out. Uh, everything is, is really just up in the air right now. And certainly Republicans are in a better position this week than they were last week when they thought they were going to have to redraw the maps and, and schedule these elections. But this is far from a done deal. Okay. One other thing uh, we should make sure we talk about this week, Lynn, is uh, the audit that came out toward the end of the week on uh, Medicaid. Basically, said that several counties, especially Wake County, uh, were taking too long uh, to process people's applications to get on Medicaid. Right. Um, a law from uh, 2015 told the state auditor to uh, look at um, essentially how the counties were handling Medicaid applications. Um, under law, they have to approve new applications and um, reapplications at a certain period of time. And uh, there was a question about if they were accomplishing that. Um, the, ch the auditor chose um, 10 counties. Wake was among them. There were three urban, uh, one designated as suburban, and the rest rural. And Wake didn't do so well in um, in uh, approving applications on time. I think it was like 26%. Um, uh, they broke the... Uh, broke the legal deadline. Um, and there were some other counties, I think uh, Guilford had the high for errors. Um, and of course, that means when you make an error, then in an application, then 
There are people who are getting uh, health insurance that shouldn't be, and some people who um, are eligible for the insurance uh, don't get it. So, um, and just a wide variability as well among the counties. I mean, there's uh, Wilkes County had uh, almost no errors and was doing almost everything on time. And what this shows, and uh, and it really emphasized as um, Auditor Beth Wood said that um, everybody in this all the counties are pretty much doing their own thing on Medicaid. And it kind of recalls in some ways um, this uh, crisis the state had a couple of years ago with uh, food stamp applications where um, they got way far behind in approving them. Um, and uh, the federal government came in and said, we're going to, we might sanction you because you're so far behind. They had to, you know, have this rush to uh, get caught up. Um, and I know in Wake County that had some implications for Medicaid applications because said, well, Wake said, well, we're we're concentrating so much on these on food stamps that we we can't do Medicaid at the same time. So I know that you know a couple of years ago at least Wake was falling behind um, for that reason on the Medicaid applications. Um, the um, the auditor said essentially told DHHS you know, you're responsible for administrating this program. You should be giving more guidance to the counties on how they, how they're, fun, they're how they're performing this function. Um, and uh, the, the DHHS event essentially agreed, but it's going to be um, up to the Cooper administration to essentially carry out what could be uh, a huge and possibly uh, politically difficult job. Yeah, and as you talked about earlier, now they'll have somebody who knows a thing or two about Medicaid right. uh, leading that up. Um, is there anything the legislature would or could uh, do on this uh, to standardize things or give more funding or uh, anything well, else? Um, I, you know, I'm not sure about that. I mean, because it is such uh, – because it is um, counties and the federal government uh, – sort of responsible at this level. Um, I think it's really, uh, it's really up to the counties to say, okay, this is how we're going to staff. Um, this is the training we're going to require. And uh, these are the salaries we're going to pay. Okay. Well, I think that's it for today. Uh, we'll come right back with headliner of the week. Stay with us. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week. We're back with headliner of the week, the uh, most significant or interesting person, place, thing in this week's news. Uh, Lynn, why don't you go first? Who's your headliner of the week? I'll pick Kestrel Heights. It's a charter school in Durham, actually a charter school with with a track record. Um, they are the school is in trouble because um, in the last eight years, forty percent of their graduates did not have uh, the coursework the state requires to uh, to graduate and receive diplomas. The um, state advisory board said this week that um, they want the high school portion of that school shut down this year. Um, something I don't recall seeing. I mean, of course, um, this advisory board has said in the past that charters should not be renewed, but I've never 
heard of them saying that part of a school should be shut down. So um, for this somewhat uh, unique, as far as I know, situation for Kestrel Heights, I'll pick Kestrel as my headliner. There's some pretty eye-popping numbers in there about the huge percentages of uh, students who graduated without having all their credits uh, in in some of the more recent years. So, uh, Okay, Kestrel Heights is in the hat. Kestrel Heights Charter School uh, for Headliner of the Week. Craig, who's your Headliner of the Week? Bo uh, McCrory. Or is it Mo? I always forget. The former first dog. Mo McCrory. Mo yeah. McCrory. Mo McCrory. The former first dog. Uh, Mo is the White House first dog, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Under Obama? Hence my confusion. Um out of nowhere, I guess it was over the weekend during the snowstorm, we see a, a YouTube video pops up with a voiceover narration by our former governor, or as he introduced himself, Pat, Governor Pat McGrory, or make that former Governor Pat McGrory. He was having some fun with it. The point of it was, uh, you know, be careful with this terrible weather to make sure your animals have the shelter they need. But the whole video was Mo or Bo, whatever his name, rolling around in the snow, seeming to have a wonderful time. So, and of course, McCrory got in his catchphrase one last time. Oh for yes, weather. right. He don't said, "Don't put your stupid hat on." Put your stupid hat on, which was one of his. Uh, well, yeah, it was one of his most memorable quotes. That's my pick. Everybody was waiting for uh, Roy Cooper to have a similar uh, kind of uh, um, yeah. Well, I was glad he at least um, you know we were, we were speculating on what Roy Cooper's uh, snowstorm attire would be. You know, McCrory was very known for having that dark green uh, emergency management shirt he put on when uh, when times got tough in terms of natural disasters. And uh, Cooper, uh, after I guess initially wearing just a, a business suit, opted for a light blue uh, button-up emergency management shirt that did not have uh, his name embroidered on it just yet. Uh, but uh, sort of the the gubernatorial fashion report that probably only we care about but yeah this is fashion is a big part of this this week's dome cast for some reason um and animals okay well we've got kestrel heights charter school in the hat for headliner of the week and we have mo mccrory the former first dog uh in the hat for headliner of the week colin who's your headliner well i didn't realize uh craig's pick but i'm gonna go head to head with him in the first pets department um because i was already thinking about uh this one i'm going with a very unusual uh addition to the the first pets uh, of north carolina uh fred the first praying mantis that's right uh north carolina now has a first praying mantis uh governor roy cooper's uh family members put up some sort of facebook page this week um giving us some insights into the uh menagerie that is now over at the the governor's mansion uh the coopers have two cats two dogs and a pet praying mantis um tried to get some details on the the praying mantis it's uh its name is winifred it knows a female known as fred uh eats insects and honey um and apparently is uh mostly belongs to Cooper's daughter, um, who apparently is somewhat of an insect enthusiast. Uh but there's some great pictures of of the praying mantis and the, the other pets, uh and there's sort of their stories and how they came to be part of the Cooper family on this first pets of North Carolina Facebook page, which we've got an article up about that now that, that links to that. So I'm going with uh Fred, the first praying mantis of North Carolina. Which first daughter is this? Is the same one that uh, was gonna sing the national anthem? This is, is Natalie. I think Natalie. Claire was gonna do yeah. the national anthem. I forget Forget what ages they all are. I want to say they're either teenagers or college age, or maybe above that. But yeah, okay, okay. Winifred, the first praying mantis, and Mo McCrory, uh, first dog. Uh, it's a regular. Uh, we're, we're a regular uh, BuzzFeed of uh, animal videos and content here. At hey, uh, we Disney didn't go BuzzFeed Survey. level on content this week. I will stress that. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, and we'll leave that one at that. And then we have Kestrel Heights. Uh, I'm afraid that I, I am going to have to go with uh, uh, Kestrel Heights because it's just going to be too hard to try to mediate a fight between a dog and a praying mantis. Uh, yeah, the pet yeah. vote. <laughs> and we wouldn't want to see you taking sides between the uh, two different administrations. Oh, that's uh, true, too. Representatives. Yeah. That, that, that's true, yes. This will be a very down-the-middle uh, uh, endorsement here. Okay, so uh, Mo and Winifred, uh, afraid, uh, afraid you'll have to hope to be uh, to make some news and be headliner of the week another week. Um but Kestrel Heights Charter School is our headliner of the week this week. Uh, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 